Welcome to Presenting Alfred Hitchcock Presents, presented by the Ann Arbor District Library. I'm Al Scherzma. This episode stars John Cassavetes, and I'm going to spend a little time with John Cassavetes before getting into the episode, because he's an important figure in the history of film. I'm not sure how known John Cassavetes is these days. His years of alcoholism led to his death at a fairly young age some time ago, but most film historians would consider him the father American cinema verite, and American independent filmmaking. With the help of his real-life wife, Jenna Rollins, and his friends, Peter Falk, Ben Gazzara, and Seymour Castle, Cassavetes wrote, directed, and acted in films that often featured troubled people in search of love or identity, usually filmed in tight close-ups, often with handheld cameras, in real locations with real sound and real ambiance. Woody Allen in September and Another Woman, Bob Rafelson in Five Easy Pieces, Hal Ashby in Coming Home, even Steven Spielberg in Saving Private Ryan are as indebted to Cassavetes as Brian De Palma is to Alfred Hitchcock. John Cassavetes was born in New York City, but his early years were spent in Greece with his family, so that when he came back to the United States at the age of seven, he spoke no English. He was raised on Long Island, And he only applied at the American Academy for Dramatic Arts because friends told him that the school was packed with girls. He graduated in 1950, but apparently maintained enough of a connection with the Academy to be at Jenna Rowland's audition in 1953. They were married four months later. Now, during this time, he was acting in the theater, but he was also getting small parts in films and began working on television. He's Plato, for example, in the Death of Socrates episode of You Are There. But it's in 1955 where he plays a killer and a juvenile delinquent in The Night Holds Terror and Crime in the Streets, respectively. That really gains him serious recognition. And you can see a leap from those two roles right into the kind of role he plays in this Hitchcock episode. Here he is, for example, in the film version of Crime in the Streets, made a year after he appeared in the live TV version. We're gonna kill him. No. No. That's what I said. Crazy. Hey, Mr. McAllister, how about that? Not funny. No, it ain't funny. Hey, you kidding us, Frank? You want me to be? No. Are you hot bumping? No. You sweating? No. You're lying. No, but... Don't matter, you get used to it, okay? That's the deal. We're gonna kill him. His career does branch out from there, but there's still this through line of playing emotionally unstable, vicious, duplicitous, dangerous individuals. Here he is, for example, in Saddle the Wind, written by Rod Serling. Why the crouch? You afraid that thing's going to draw against you? Let's keep it in the family, huh, Steve? I ask you a question. You afraid it's going to draw against you? Maybe, someday. (laughs) What's the matter? You got something against practicing? Don't needle me, Tony. You know how I feel. I've told you a hundred times. I got something against the breed that over-practices. How do I get that to register? Have I got to crawl inside your head with an iron and burn it there? Here he is in The Dirty Dozen, for which he was nominated as Best Supporting Actor. I'll have you out of here in less than 24 hours, but you'll be worked to death and there's not a beating you won't take. And then when I'm satisfied with you, you'll go in just where the Army tells you. Chances are you get killed anyway. And <laughs> you don't know Victor Franco. Guard. All right, what's the deal? What's the deal if I do stay alive? I get off the hook. Okay, count me in. I'm in. But you follow up once, anywhere along the line, just once. 
and you'll be right back here at the end of a rope. Hey. Hey, wait a minute. Wait a minute. What's the matter with you? You think I'm going to die? <laughs> If you do, then you don't know Victor Franco. Here he is in a Columbo episode as the killer, alongside his friend Peter Falk. Why would a woman who's going to commit suicide type a goodbye note, put it in the machine, and take it out again? I don't know. All right. Suppose she didn't type it. Suppose somebody else typed it. All right, who? Who did it? Whoever murdered her. <laughs> You know, Lieutenant, you're really a cocky fellow. You're very sure of this, aren't you? I think that there is a very distinct possibility of murder in this case, yes. I think there's a possibility, but I don't think it's distinct. Suppose the murderer in this case was a friend of hers. Suppose the murderer in this case was a man who had access to her house, came and went whenever he wanted to, typed up that letter beforehand when she wasn't around. Promise me you'll think about it. When you come up with the correct answer, you'll let me know. I'm going to take a nap now. Will you excuse me? Suppose it was you. And then, of course, here he is in Rosemary's Baby. Rosemary, you got the best doctor in New York. You know who Dr. Hill is? He's a Charlie nobody. That's who he is. I'm tired of hearing how great Dr. Saperstein is. Well, we'll have to pay Sapristy, we'll have to pay Hill. Well, it's out of the question. Uh-uh, uh-uh. No, I'm, I'm not changing. I just want to go to Dr. Hill and get a second opinion. I won't let you do it, Rome. I mean, because it's, uh, it's not fair to Sapristine. Not fair to... What are you talking about? What about what's fair to me? If you want a second opinion, you tell Sapristine... And, and, and let him decide. No, I, I want Dr. Hill. <laughs> At least if have that much courtesy to tell how you feel. Ro? Rosemary? What is it? Stop. What? Pain, stop. 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 He also appeared in The Killers the motorcycle gang movie Devil's Angels, and Brian De Palma's The Fury. And he starred as Johnny Staccato, a television series about a jazz pianist who also worked as a private eye, which was on from September 1959 to September 1960, none of which is what John wanted to do with his career. As he's quoted on his IMDb page, I'm a professional actor out of defense. I'd prefer to be an amateur actor but I've got to have money to make films. Unfortunately, it's an extremely expensive hobby. So he took his earnings from television and the movies and he put them into his own films. His first film, Shadows, took four years to make, mostly on weekends and whenever money was available. It's a film you would never expect to see coming out of the 1950s with a mostly African-American cast. It's complex with no simple answers or resolutions. It's in black and white with the sound of New York City all around it. The characters all have the same first name as the actors, maybe so that no one would stumble over characters' names during their improvisation. Here's a crucial moment of the film, where Leela, a light-skinned African-American woman, has her white boyfriend home, and he discovers that she and her family are black. As with many scenes in Cassavetti's films, it becomes uncomfortable because characters are unable to speak their feelings, 
because the scene goes on much longer than that with which an audience itself is comfortable. Where are you going? Oh, my appointment. You didn't tell me about an appointment earlier. I just remembered about it just a couple of months ago. Honey, I love you. Does that mean anything? Look, we'll, we'll have lunch tomorrow, okay? After lunch, after lunch, we'll go to a, a, a movie or something like that, and maybe have some drinks. Lily. Lily. Look. I don't, want, I don't want to fight with you. I don't want to argue with you. What's the matter? I want you to go. What? I, I don't want you. I don't want you. I don't want you. To, to hurt my sister? I don't want, I don't want to hurt your sister. Look, look, look. Maybe I can make you understand what I want no, you to do. No, yeah, I don't want to hurt you. Look, I want you to go. Why? I don't understand that. Look, I want you to go. <laughs> I mean, it's as, as simple as that. I, I don't want you around. Do you want to have dinner with us tomorrow night? I don't want I'll nothing. I'll take you, I'll take you, I don't I'll take you and Rook to dinner. Both, all, all of us will go. Look, I can't seem to make it clear to you. I don't want you around hurting my sister. I don't want you to hurt anything of mine. Now go. Just get out. You're telling me to get out. Get out, man. What do you want me to do now? Just get out. Remember, you told me to get out. Look, look. Will you, will you leave? Will you leave before I do something I don't want to do right now? You just get out of here. Go ahead. But you remember, you told me to get out of here! Will you get out of the house? Shadows won the Critics Award at the Venice Film Festival that year, even as John was unable to get American distribution of it. And it made very little money, as we usually judge films. But then again, it cost very little money to make. So Cassavetes did gain a profit from it. The next film that he both directed and financed himself was Faces, which came out in 1968. That film starred his wife, Jenna Rollins, John Marley, Seymour Castle, and Lynn Carlin. And it deals with the disintegration of marriage in the 1960s. It took three years to make and was mostly filmed in the Cassavetes' home. Here is a scene in which, after what appears to be a whole lot of passive-aggressive foreplay, John Marley surprises his wife, Lynn Carlin, with a demand. I want a divorce. <laughs> Did you hear what I said? <laughs> I want a divorce. That's the only thing to do, isn't it? Why don't you laugh? It's funny. Well, what's your answer? Answer me! The film earned three Academy Award nominations. Seymour Castle for Best Supporting Actor, Lynn Carlin for Best Supporting Actress, 
and John Cassavetes for Best Screenplay, but it didn't win any of them. It did, however, win Best Film at the Venice Film Festival, where John Marley won for Best Actor, and Cassavetes won Best Screenplay at the National Society of Film Critics Awards. And so in 1970, Cassavetes directed and acted in Husbands, alongside Peter Falk and Ben Gazzara. They played three married men who go on a spree in New York and in London after the funeral of one of their best friends, making it possibly an inspiration for Lawrence Kasdan's The Big Chill. According to Wikipedia, Cassavetti stated that this was a personal film for him since his older brother died at the age of 30. Here's a scene with the three actors together. I got older, she gets younger. (laughs) They all get younger, you get older. Well, that's it. I'll go to Africa, Russia, China! I don't care. I don't care. You're not the first guy to ever punch his wife out. Here he goes again. I have to agree with him. We're going to start? Listen, you worry about your family, we worry about our family. That's the way it is. Well, what's wrong with that? Well, you're not worried about our family when you go on like that because... uh, You're going to put me down again, right? We have our problems. All right. I get it. I get it. I know who my friends are. It's not all one way, you know. I'll just go to work and think it over. Wait a minute. I'll go to work and think it over. That's all. Wait. (laughs) I'm going to work. You want to go to work? I'll drive you. Are you going to work? Harry? Archie. I'll get in the car with you. After that, I don't know, because you can be violent. Okay, that's all I ask. Harry, you're a fantastic man. After Husbands came Minnie and Moskowitz in 1971, about two unlikely lovers, played by Jenna Rollins and Seymour Castle. 1974 brought A Woman Under the Influence, starring Jenna Rollins as an increasingly troubled housewife, for which she was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Actress, and Cassavetes was nominated for Best Director. According to Wikipedia, he mortgaged his house to acquire the funds to shoot a woman under the influence instead of seeking money from an investor who might try to change the script so as to make the film more marketable. 1976 brought The Killing of a Chinese Bookie with Ben Gazzara as a small-time strip club owner, then Opening Night in 1977 with Jenna Rollins alongside John Cassavetes, Ben Gazzara, and Joan Blondell. In 1980, John directed Gloria, Again, featuring Jenna Rollins, this time as a mob mall who tries to protect an orphan boy. She earned another Best Actress nomination for that role. A few years before that, John wrote the stage play Knives. It was produced in 1981, along with two other plays, one of which was Ted Allen's Love Streams, which became the blueprint for John's 1984 film of the same name. Around that time, he was told by his doctor that he had six months to live. So he made the film Love Streams, starring himself as an aging alcoholic who discovers that he has a son by his ex-wife. Want a drink? Would you like a Coca-Cola or a beer or something? A beer. Ha, 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 ha. 
Um, Did you run away because I was born? No. I didn't even know you were coming. Now, he outlasted the six-month prediction, but he was still ailing. And he worked in the last year of his life on a film that he was going to call She's the Lovely. He was in conversations with Sean Penn to star in it, but everything fell through. And it was forgotten until after his death when it was made starring Sean Penn as She's So Lovely by John Cassavetti's director's son, Nick Cassavetes. His daughters, Zoe and Zan, are also filmmakers. John Cassavetes died of cirrhosis of the liver in 1989. He was 59 years old. Peter Falk said, Every Cassavetes film is always about the same thing. Somebody said, Man is God in ruins. And John saw the ruins with a clarity that you and I could not tolerate. Here's Al Rubin, cinematographer and producer of a number of Cassavetes films. I think John set out to make films that he cared about. Uh, I don't think style comes into it because that's interpretive. Uh, I think the audience makes up its own mind as to what's going on. I know that he made the films to please him, not anyone else. Here's Seymour Castle talking about John. I always had my eye on John because I could tell when he was loving it, you know, and, and his intensity, the way he would, he would watch you. As a, if he wasn't operating the camera, he'd be right next to it. And he'd bite his hand to keep from laughing at some things that were silly and, and funny to him. And, and other times, you, you, I mean, if you're doing a scene with three people and, and you, know, you can see him shooting over their shoulders and stuff and you, you see him as you look around and you could see it, his intensity with the way he watched the performers. We liked each other a lot. We were both a little crazy in our own ways, you know, and he admired that with me and as I did with him because I would sit with him at a, at a restaurant in uh, London uh, and a couple of producers would go, John, how you doing? You got a script? What are you, you selling a movie? And John, and he would start to tell a story. And I knew he didn't have the script because I knew he was there acting in a movie, and he didn't have it. But he'd make it up on the spot. And the guy said, Well, that's what you drop a script by. That was, sounds good, you know. So I knew he was pretty good at the, at making up stories, you know. And here's a couple of clips of John himself from the documentary, I'm Almost Not Crazy. Nothing that you planned is ever on the film. Something else may be on the film, but nothing that you planned will ever come to life. There's something alive about films that says, I resist you. The film itself resists, and it says to you, <laughs> you think you're going to do this, but I'm going to do something else. And I'm not telling you what I'm going to do. I think if you were in an ordinary movie, someone would say, pick up the dialogue, or let's go here, or this is what you should do, we need a little bizazz here, and all that stuff, and that would be disastrous, I think, for a scene like that. So, uh, when it gets out to a movie theater, somebody might say, it's dull. Somebody else might say, that's the most devastating scene I've ever seen. Somebody else might say, what was that all about, you, you know? 
And the way we make pictures is we make pictures for people that are interested in specifics. They're not going to be interested in everything. They're going to be interested in that scene. I love that scene. Somebody else say, I hate that scene. Because it has something to do with their life. And in that sense, it's not like a movie. It's a, a movie tries to pacify people by keeping it going for them so that it's sheer entertainment. Well, I hate entertainment. You go with the expectancy as an audience to see something that's going to knock you off your feet. And you settle for a nice movie, you know? And you think, I don't want to see something different. I don't want to see something different. I don't want to. I hate it. I hate it. I want it in my form. I want action. I want this. And then when you see something that's different, you say, and you can't get it out of your mind, you're still angry with the son of a gun. And you think, ah, I hated that picture. I hated it. I hated it. But, the, you know, ten years later, you remember it. And you think, hmm, I saw something. That's interesting. And, and I think filmmakers should be aware that they don't know anything. And this one might possibly say it all. We're making a picture about inner life, and nobody really believes that it can be put on the screen, including me. I don't believe it either, but screw it. On the surface, it would seem that John Cassavetes and Alfred Hitchcock are two very different types of directors. But ultimately, they're both interested in, as Cassavetes says in that clip, inner life. And they just went about the attempts to put it on the screen in different ways. So, oh yeah, that's right. This podcast is supposed to be about Alfred Hitchcock, specifically Alfred Hitchcock Presents. So let's get back to that. But let me first say that John Cassavetes does appear two more times, but in the Alfred Hitchcock Hour. His next appearance, along with Jenna Rollins, is in episode 19 of season two, an episode entitled murder case. So now, at last, let's get to Hitch. Good evening. The uh, hourglass is a wonderful invention, but I'm afraid it will never replace the sundial. Certainly not in my garden. This one doesn't even work. I sent it to a jeweler's to be cleaned and he removed all the sand. Fortunately, the second hand still functions. The second hand is a smaller hourglass with sand that he places on top of the sandless large hourglass. Time is very important to the characters in tonight's story. One of them is doing it. For another, time seems to be running out. Time is also very important in television. We fill it. We must start on it. We must finish on it. And, appropriately enough, we occasionally kill it. I refer, of course, to my own fumbling efforts, certainly not to the stellar entertainment which follows. He turns the second-hand hourglass over, and the show begins. So here's You Got to Have Luck, starring John Cassavetes and Marissa Pavan. Teleplay by Eustace and Francis Cockrell, based on a story by S.R. Ross and directed by Robert Stevens. As you'll see a little bit later, the short story is very compact, and it focuses tightly on Mary and Sam. But Eustace and Francis Cockrell needed to open that up a little bit. So where the story begins with Sam entering the farmhouse, the episode begins with the sound of a siren announcing a prison escape. With a close-up of that siren, it's hand-cranked, we see the hand of a prison guard turning the crank to make the siren go. There's a crossfade to two men in an office 
One has his back to us. He's looking through the blinds of the window. The other, facing us, is on the telephone, but no sound comes out of his mouth in the initial part of the scene. All we still get is the sound of the siren. Until the man on the phone turns and says, It's the eagle. Oh, I can't talk to them now. But it's the editor. He said you might not look quite so silly if you released some kind of a statement of how he got out. Well, do they know who it is? Sure. He knows it's Cobbett. They have sources in prison. They pay for tips. All right. The man by the window takes the phone, and that's how we learn that he's... Warden Jacobs speaking. Yes? That's right. No. No? Of course not. He wanted to know if we made Sam Cobbett a trustee. This all seems straightforward enough, but it's actually a very odd scene. The man who's in charge, the warden, is presented to us with his back turned, looking out the window, like a little kid wishing for the rain to go away. The man who appears to be in charge at the beginning, he's in the foreground, he's on the telephone, is actually so insignificant he doesn't get a name. He's just apparently Warden Jacob's secretary. Another thing that's unusual about this scene is that most of the talking is done by somebody we don't even hear. The editor of The Eagle is asking questions. All we hear are the simple one-word replies until we get to the punchline, which is that the editor wanted to know if we've made Sam Cobbett a trustee. We don't even know who Sam Cobbett is yet, but this sure sounds like a dig at the warden. So is this episode going to be a comedy? These two guys seem to be comic figures. Let's look at these two guys. The warden is played by Ray Teal, and we've seen him before. He was the police lieutenant in the very first episode, Revenge. But I didn't give him much airtime in that podcast. So here's a little bit more about him. Ray Teal's film career began in 1937 in Sweetheart of the Navy. Through his career, he's been in crime dramas, costume pictures. He was Little John in The Bandit of Sherwood Forest, movie serials, and westerns. Lots and lots of westerns. He was the propagandist who gets knocked flat by Dana Andrews in the best years of our lives. We let ourselves get sold down the river. We were pushed into war. Sure, by the Japs and the Nazis, so we had... Oh, the Germans and the Japs had nothing against us. They just wanted to fight the Limeys and the Reds. And they would have whipped them, too. We didn't get deceived into it by a bunch of radicals in Washington. What are you talking about? We fought the wrong people, that's all. Just read the facts, my friend. Find out for yourself why you had to lose your hands. And then go out and do something about it. You better pay your check, brother, and go home. Well, who do you think you are? Pay the cashier right over there. Coffee, please. Yes, And there's another thing. Every soda jerk in this country's got an idea he's somebody. Look here, mister. What are you selling, anyway? I'm not selling anything but plain old-fashioned Americanism. Some Americanism. So we're all a bunch of suckers, eh? So we should have been on the side of the Japs and the Nazis, eh? Again, I say, just look at the facts. I've seen a couple of facts. I've seen a ship go down and over 400 of my shipmates went with it. Were those guys suckers? That's the unpleasant truth. And the sooner we get wise to it, the better off we're going to... Oh, if, if I only had my hands. You put those down! Take your hands over there. Oh. 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 
He's one of the judges alongside Spencer Tracy in Judgment at Nuremberg. Now, on the basis of these, I don't see where the prosecution has put forth a really clear-cut case against the defense pertaining to the charges in the indictment. Regardless of the acts committed, we cannot make the interpretation that these defendants are really responsible for crimes against humanity. What do you think, Dan? Ken, we've been going over these points all day. If it isn't clear now, aren't you going to look at these precedents? Aren't you interested at all? Yes, I'm interested, Curtis. You were speaking of crimes against humanity and saying that the defendants were not responsible for their acts. I'd like you to explain that to me. I've just been explaining it. Well, maybe. But all I've heard is a lot of legalistic double talk and rationalization. He's the bar owner in The Wild One with Marlon Brando and the bartender in Marlon Brando's One-Eyed Jacks. Hey, Johnny, wait a minute. Can't you stop this? Hey, where's that guy I'm looking for? I don't know, look, I treated you people right. If you can stop this, well, I don't I'll... stop nothing, man. But they're wrecking my place. My whole oh, place yes, is going to get right. All right, man, what do you think? Oh, no. Hey, gents. Here's some hot coffee for you. I guess you can use it after last night, huh? Oh, what a nice. Hey, hombre. This horse is still fighting for his life. That's what you got a sharp knife for, friend. He's in the thriller episode, The Purple Room, and the Twilight Zone episode, Printer's Devil. And he played sheriffs. Lots and lots of sheriffs including Sheriff Ray Coffey for 98 episodes of Bonanza. Any idea who did it, Sheriff? Yeah, it could have been the John Pardo bunch. He pulled a job just about like this up in Butte last year. Well, what are we waiting for? Now, wait a minute, Joe. The Sheriff has plenty of help up north. He's holding us responsible for the Ponderosa. Chances are they'll hold up for a while anyway. This thing cools down a bit. And we'll just see to it that they don't hold up on our land. So keep your eyes open for anything unusual. You know, smoke... Tracks that had not to be there. Drifters that got a lot more money than they ought to have. Anything like that. Well, we'll let you know if we see anything, Roy. Uh, much obliged to you, Ben. More than likely they won't come down this way at all. But it don't do no harm to make sure. He's in eight total episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. His next is The Babysitter, episode 32. And Ray Teal died in 1976 at the age of 74. Hal K. Dawson plays the secretary. His filmography begins in 1930, mostly in B-movies, including four Blondie films, Blondie on a Budget, Life with Blondie, Blondie's Big Moment, Blondie and the Doe. He would have been in five, but his scenes were cut from the first film. He has a very small role in The Amazing Dr. Glitterhouse, not to be confused with The Amazing Dr. Glitternight, a villain created by Doug Mensch for the Werewolf by Night comic book clearly inspired by the movie title. That film stars Edward G. Robinson, Humphrey Bogart, and Claire Trevor. He's in the science fiction theater episode, No Food for Thought. He's the townsman in Superman and the Mole Men who shoots one of the Mole Men. We got them trapped. They can't get away. Tie up the dogs, Matt. Eddie, get that searchlight. Let me take the first shot, Luke. Old Betsy here will knock them off like sitting ducks. In 1961... He appears in the sitcom Angel, in which he is credited as Old Man. This starts a bit of a trend. He's in the Twilight Zone episode Showdown with Rance McGrew 
as old man. He's in the Batman episode, True or False Face, as elderly messenger. Messenger here for Batman. Are, uh, are you Batman, Sonny? He's in Room 222 as older man. Police Story as older drunk. And Emergency as old man. His last appearance is in Archie Bunker's Place as elderly striker number two. We'll see him one more time in The End of Indian Summer, episode 22 of season two. And Hal K. Dawson died in 1987 at the age of 90. So now we get to the action, right? Well, no. The warden and his secretary contact Willis in the helicopter, and we join two prison guards flying around the countryside looking for signs of the escaped convict. Yes, sir. Now, we haven't been able to see anything so far. There's 20 miles of road where he could have dropped off the truck and plenty of cover. If he gets hold of some clothes, it'll be hard to catch. Yes, sir, I will. So this is interesting exposition, I suppose. The convict has stolen a truck and ditched it. But do we really need this APB giving us a description of the prisoner when we're going to see him in a few minutes anyway? All points. Sam Cobbett, 26. Weight 160. Height 5 feet 9 inches. Brown hair. Dark heavy eyebrows. Sallow complexion. Escape State Penitentiary approximately 3.13 p.m. May be heading south on foot. Cobbett was serving four consecutive 99-year terms for armed robbery, criminal assault, and murder. He is extremely dangerous. Has the letters M.A. tattooed on the back of his right hand. No other distinguishing mark. All right, we do get some more detail about Sam Cobbett. And the information about M.A. tattooed on the back of his hand leads us to a nice little moment of shock when we first see that. But then, do we really need this later? Cobbett is about 5 feet 9, weighs about 160 pounds, with dark, heavy eyebrows, and a sallow complexion. Okay, I get it. I'm picking and choosing a little bit here. There's more to that radio broadcast that gives us more information. But my point here is there's a lot of extraneous information and detail going on in this episode to fill things out that don't necessarily do justice to the episode or are told to us more than once. And to emphasize that, here's the two guards in the helicopter. How do you get out? In a laundry basket. And here's Cobbett later on. The lid was off this laundry basket, see? The driver drops a cigarette. He leans down to pick it up. I got that long to make up my mind. But I do it. Now, as long as we're dawdling, let's take a look at the two guys in the helicopter. This won't take long. Robert Patton, who plays Willis, the co-pilot, was previously in episode 14, A Bullet for Baldwin, and we talked about him then. This is his last Alfred Hitchcock Presents appearance. And Steve Clark, who's the pilot, well, IMDb seems to think he's Stephen Clark, who had a 20-year career mostly in westerns. The only problem is Stephen Clark died in 1954 at the age of 63, so I have a pretty good idea that this isn't him. So Willis looks out the window of his helicopter. The camera shows us what he sees, a rather sparse-looking countryside. And then we get a crossfade down to the farmhouse where David and Mary live. Now that shot of the countryside might be there to establish that the house we're going to go to is down there somewhere. But in doing so, it may be trying to convince us that the house is really in the countryside and not as it obviously is on a set. 
The door of the house opens, and David Schaffner comes out. He's letting their dog, Mike, out. You want out? I'm letting you out. Come on, Mike. Come on. Out a dog. What does he say there? At a girl? Is Mike a girl? Well, apparently not, because later on he says, Come on, boy. So it's probably just a goof. Mike, after he's let out, apparently sees something and barks. He runs past the fence into some brush, and then we get this rather distressing sound. And we never see Mike again. I think this means that Sam Cobbett got a hold of him and killed him. But if that distresses you, look at it this way. If you freeze the frame, which of course they couldn't do back in 1956, after Mike has gone under the fence into the brush, you can see that he's stopped there and his tail is wagging. So I think that rather than Mike really getting into the hands of Sam Cobbett, he probably got into the hands of his trainer. So now we meet Mary and David Schaffner. They have this charming little conversation about the grocery list that Mary has put together for David. Milk, butter, BRN rice, burn rice. Brown rice, silly. Oh, yeah, I thought it was burnt rice. It reminds me of the repartee between Carl and Elsa in our very first episode, Revenge, an episode written by one of our co-writers here, Francis Cockrell. Hey, worthless. Breakfast ready. So soon? Sure. I don't know how long it takes to get to this plant, and I don't want to be late the first day. You will make a spoiled do-nothing out of me. I'll give you every assistance possible. Maybe these scenarios seem the same because they're leading to the same setup. The husband is going to leave the wife alone. The wife doesn't think that's a problem. But it is a problem. In revenge, Elsa says, I'll be all right. Probably get a little bored, though, without you. The last three days have been so wonderful. But otherwise, I'll be all right. And here, when David says, I hate leaving you alone like this. Mary replies, Why? What could happen? A little later, assuring David that, I'll be fine. Now, there's another reason in both episodes as to why the husband may be a little bit more than naturally worried about his wife being all alone. And that is they know something about their wives. In Revenge, it said Elsa has recently had a nervous breakdown. And here in You Got to Have Luck, it's, well, let's leave that for the time being. So David gets into his Jeep to head off into town, unfortunately saying before he goes, I should be back by 8 o'clock this evening. Except he does say this inside, where you would think that anybody eavesdropping outside wouldn't be able to hear. Now, like Mike... We won't see David again in this episode either. So let's take a look at Lamont Johnson, who plays David. He was born Ernest Lamont Johnson Jr. And according to Wikipedia, when he was 16, he began his career in radio, eventually playing the role of Tarzan in 1951. He also worked as a newscaster and a disc jockey. And according to Wikipedia, he was one of several actors to play Archie Goodwin in The New Adventures of Nero Wolfe opposite Sidney Greenstreet. Now, I've checked out every available episode. There were several people that played Archie Goodwin, some for just one or two episodes. So it's possible that Lamont Johnson played him in just one episode. If he did, he's in the one episode that seems to have been lost. Anyway, he went on to play Ishmael in the 1954 TV version of Moby Dick, and he's in episodes of Gunsmoke, The Big Valley, and The Loretta Young Show. But... 
He is mostly known as a director. He directed episodes of Have Gun, Will Travel, Peter Gunn, Naked City, Dr. Kildare, The Name of the Game, Judd for the Defense, and so on. But it may be Twilight Zone fans who know him best because he directed eight episodes of that series. The Shelter. You're a doctor! You're supposed to help people! Five characters in search of an exit. We must have names. We're people. Nothing in the dark. I don't want to die. You understand. I know who you are. One more pallbearer. I am to survive, Mr. Hughes. I am 300 feet underground. And what about you, Reverend? Do you wish to survive? Do the rest of you wish to survive? Or am I to be the only pallbearer? Kick the can. Sneak out at night when the weather was like this, and we'd play kick the can. Four o'clock. At four o'clock in the afternoon, at precisely four o'clock, every evil man and woman will be exactly two feet tall. Hocus Pocus and Frisbee. I'm just an old country boy with a big mouth. And Passage on the Lady Anne. Excuse me, but what are you talking about? Why should we gather our things together? Because, my friends, we're putting you off the ship. Lamont Johnson died in 2010 at the age of 88. Marissa Pavan was born Maria Luisa Pierangeli. Wikipedia says she is an Italian-born actress who first became known as the twin sister of film star Pier Angeli, whose real name was Anna Maria Pierangeli, before achieving success in films on her own. Pier Angeli, by the way, died of a barbiturate overdose at the age of 39 in 1971. Jack Seabrook says that Marissa Pavan took her acting surname from the name of a Jewish officer her family hid in their home during World War II. Marissa signed a contract with Paramount at the age of 19, and her film debut came in What Price Glory. What village in America do you come from? I come from the village of uh, Philadelphia. Philadelphia is a city. Thank you. Benjamin Franklin came from Philadelphia. He discovered lightning. Again, according to Wikipedia, her breakthrough came in the film The Rose Tattoo in 1955 as Anna Magnani's daughter. Her role was first assigned to Pierangeli, who then became unavailable to play the part. Kneel to our lady and swear to me you study civics. No, I will not. Because you don't study no civics tonight. Don't study no civics. Why do you talk like you just keep moving? This is Cecily, mother. You are not a baroness. You do sewing. Daddy? Daddy hold bananas. You hold bananas and something under the banana. She won the Golden Globe for Best Supporting Actress for that performance, and she was nominated as Best Supporting Actress in the Oscars, though she lost to Jovan Fleet in East of Eden. Anna Magnani, though, won Best Actress, and when she wasn't able to appear, Marissa Pavan accepted the Oscar in her name. I just want to thank you all, and I want to give you a kiss from Anna. Now, in that same year, 1956, she married French actor Jean-Pierre Aumont, and they stayed married until his death in 2001. They performed together and were, in the 60s, a very well-known couple, as can be seen by the fact that they were discovered very quickly when they appeared as the celebrity guests in What's My Line. Are you currently performing in New York? That's yes, Mr. Sir. 
Are you currently performing in New York as a team of two? Yes, Miss Francis. Yes. Oh. Uh, it isn't, uh, uh, uh Jean-Pierre Aumont and yeah. Marissa Pavan. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Oh, no. We were hoping to get you tied in knots, get you into the movies, into the theater, and everything else, but you fooled us. Fooled they us. had such wonderful reviews at the Persian Room. The Persian oh, Room thank you, yes. Wonderful reviews. But you always guess. Every time I have no, been on you... No, sometimes I am very stupid. <laughs> <laughs> Not when I have been on. <laughs> well, it's a joy to have Mr. and Mrs. Jean-Pierre Aumont with us. Thank and you. I must say, with Arlene, I, I, uh, I'm... Share uh, the joy you must feel in those wonderful notices in the Persian Room. Well, yeah, very we are nice. very, Thank very you. And, uh, <laughs> Everybody has been very nice with us, I must say. Many too nice people <laughs> should be that way. Thanks very Thank much. You. Thank, Thank you for having They toured that act throughout the United States, Canada, and Mexico in the 60s. Marissa Pavan had a hit overseas in the 70s with a French language version of Burt Bacharach's Green Grass Starts to Grow. I can't find that. But here she is singing Croyez-moi. Croyez-moi Je vivais sans amour Et voilà qu'un beau jour Mon cœur a bien voulu sourire pour vous Marissa Pavan also appeared in the films Diane, The Man in the Gray Flannel Suit, The Midnight Story, John Paul Jones, Solomon and Sheba, A Slightly Pregnant Man, and Antoine and Sebastian. On television, she's in episodes of Naked City, 77 Sunset Strip, Combat, The FBI, Wonder Woman, and Hawaii Five-0, as well as the miniseries Arthur Haley's The Money Changers, and a steady role on the soap opera Ryan's Hope. This is her only appearance on Alfred Hitchcock Presents, and Marissa Pavan, at the time of this recording, is 87 years old. It's been a long time coming here, but here we finally are. Mary is alone. The camera switches to inside the house with the door open as Mary waves goodbye and David drives past in his Jeep. She enters and does not lock the door. Not that it matters much because it just has a screen on it. Then she gets a knife out of a drawer so she can cut excess crust off a pie she is about to bake. The camera follows her over. We see her shadow cast on the refrigerator. It's a nice shot as the camera then zooms in to show a close-up of her cutting the excess crust off the pie. Then she goes to put the pie in the oven, leaving the knife behind. The music rises, what the pie lady calls the Oh No You Didn't Sting as a hand with M.A. tattooed on it, locks the door. He is already inside. Then that hand grabs the knife she left behind. So Sam enters when her back is turned while she's cutting the crust off the pie. He is very quiet, so quiet that we don't hear him. There's a shot from behind Mary as she puts the pie in the oven from Sam's point of view. Then she turns and sees him. He is very cool, perched on the table, wiping the crust off the knife with his fingers. A handsome but dangerous-looking man with a five o'clock shadow. And he says, 
Well, how do you do? I know this was my day. What, what do you want? Well, that's an easy question. But I'm in a little bit of a hurry. A little bit of a rush. He looks her up and down as he says this. And the sexual threat is very real. And it continues throughout the episode. You, you're a convict. I was, but I'm out now. I'm going to stay out. Should she know about the convict? It's not anything that she and David talked about that we heard. She tries to bluff him by telling him that her husband's going to be back at any moment. Now, you see, you're off to a bad start already. Your husband won't be back till late. Now, you shouldn't lie to me, chick. Now, I wondered before whether he should have been able to hear David saying that he wasn't going to be back until 8. But be that as it may, the things that Sam hears become important things in this episode, just as the things that Mary doesn't hear become important. The ring of the telephone, the radio report, and so on. All of those sounds influence his actions and, in a sense, cause his downfall. Now that he has Mary's cooperation, he very coolly throws the knife down and its point sticks in the cutting board. It's a very nice moment, but you have to wonder how many takes it took. Then he goes over to turn on the radio, but the phone rings. Answer the phone. Not talk now, Chick. Hey, this is a pony line. What's your ring? A long, too short, and a long. What do you think you're doing? What's the matter with you? I'm sorry, you told me to answer. And I told you no tricks, too, didn't I? But I was not trying to do anything. What? Just a... Chick, you got any idea? Whatever. What you mean to a guy that's been in stir for three years, do you? The sexual threat is very real at this point. He has her pinned up against the wall. But again, his hearing distracts him and saves her when he starts to hear the bulletin about his escape and his description. Now, it occurs to me that not everyone may know what a party line is. Here's Wikipedia. A party line is a local loop telephone circuit that is shared by multiple telephone service subscribers. Party line systems were widely used to provide telephone service, starting with the first commercial switchboards in 1878. A majority of Bell System subscribers in the mid-20th century in the United States and Canada were serviced by party lines, which carried a billing discount over individual service. During wartime shortages, these were often the only available lines. To signal specific subscribers on party lines selectively, telephone operating companies implemented various signaling systems. The earliest selective system was the code ringing system, in which each telephone subscriber was assigned a specific ringing cadence. In this case, long to shorten the long. Jack Seabrook in Bare Bones E-Zine notes that the cockerels are fond of adding details like this to familiarize the viewer with an object that will be important in a later scene. Let's get back to that radio report, which prompts Sam to let Mary go and to go over to listen to the radio. Mary looks at him. She has a concerned, slightly baffled look on her face. She doesn't know what's going on. Sam Cobbett, the killer and bank robber who was serving a sentence of 396 years in the state penitentiary, escaped this afternoon and is still at large. The search for Cobbett, who has been free for two hours, has shifted upstate since motorist Tom Robellis reported a hitchhiker answering Cobbett's description, to whom Robellis had offered a ride, had forced him from his automobile at gunpoint and fled northward. Cobbett is about 5 feet 9, weighs about 160 pounds, with dark, heavy eyebrows, and a sallow complexion. In Washington... That does it. This is my day. I knew what I told you, didn't I? 
He tells her he's hungry, and she agrees to make him three eggs. While she breaks the first two eggs, he lays down the law. Okay, now let's you and me get something straight between us. Do you know what they could do to me if I were to kid you or something? No. Nothing. That's all. Just nothing. You see, you don't burn for murder in this state, and I'm already up for life. So anything I could do to you would be for absolutely free. Do you understand? Yes. All right, just remember that. We'll get along fine. I'll put him on the fire. Jack Seabrook says there is a bit of symbolism as Sam asks Mary if she understands that he can receive no greater punishment for hurting her. As he says this, she breaks an egg on the side of a bowl, symbolizing both her own fragility and what she thinks could happen to Sam. There is a nice close-up of the bowl as she breaks the egg, much harder, more forcefully than you would ordinarily do it. So while Jack might be right, I see it more as Mary's defiance, her anger, her wish to fight back, all of which is dispelled because Sam breaks the last egg himself, symbolically representing his control, his force. As Mary moves over to cook the eggs, we're left with Sam all alone in the shot as he takes that knife and uses it to cut a piece of bread. Then he throws the knife down again. It apparently sticks in the cutting board again, though we don't see that. And he moves over to the stove leans over to tell Mary his philosophy. You want to know something, Chick? What? You got to have luck. Yeah, that's all it is. You got it, you can do anything. You ain't and you're dead. But you got to know it, see? That's the thing. You got to recognize it when the time comes. And you got to jump. What, you think it's easy to bust out of that jail? No, no, it must be very hard. Chick, it was impossible, that's all. But I did it. Because I knew. The lid was off this laundry basket, see? The driver drops a cigarette. He leans down to pick it up. I got that long to make up my mind. But I do it. And I get in, and I'm out. So then I hit here. Chow, clothes, little time. Even a nice doll like you. What's your name? Mary. Oh, I like the way you talk. Mary. What are you, one of these Italian girls or something? My parents came from Italy. I like your wrist. It's just the way you, I like. You must like your mother very much, I guess. Yeah. That's why I got her there, so I can look at her all the time. This is another very serious sexual threat that Mary averts by noticing his tattoo, M.A. Now, Jack says... Does he really love his mother and want to remember her fondly? Or does the tattoo remind him of a woman he hates so much that he can't forget how she treated him? We will never know. But either explanation is plausible. What we do know is that Sam's mother has just saved Mary. And Mary's mother will also save Mary a little later on. With the sexual threat temporarily tamped down, Mary goes to the refrigerator, turns her back on Sam. He says, I want some coffee. And she says, What did you say? It doesn't seem like much, but it's our first clue as to what's really going on. The scene switches back to the two guards in the helicopter. They say one thing worth repeating. He can hear us before we can see him. So again, it's back to Sam's hearing and how what he hears influences his actions. Meanwhile, the pilots seem to be looking around in the same place. 
we get a shot of the countryside below them, it's the exact same shot we've seen before. And again, it crossfades down to the house. Sam is still talking, trying to justify himself. So you see, a man can't live in a cage. It stretches him too tight. So what do you do? You watch all the time for a break, night and day. And when it comes, you got a rod in the house. A rod? Did you say rod? That's right, a gun, a pistol. Oh, no. All right, where's the rifle, then? We don't have a rifle. Okay, shotgun. Where's your shotgun? We don't have one. We don't have any guns at all. Guns are to kill things with. We don't want to kill anything. When a fat bank guard draws down on you, then it's different. It's him or you. So now we know who Sam killed, and we know that any regrets he may have are buried under his excuses. He asks Mary for the money in the house. She says the only money is in her purse. When she goes over to get it, Sam follows, grabbing the knife, which is again stuck in the cutting board. But all she has in her purse is... Three dollars and a little change. It's okay. Leave it there for now. You know, you're going to be a great big help. That's yours. You said a long, two shorts and a long, didn't you? Yes. Come on. We also recognize it as her ring even before Sam says anything because we've been told. A long, two shorts, and a long. As Jack said, the cockerels have familiarized us with that. Sam rushes Mary over to the phone. He puts the receiver up to her ear so that he can listen as well. And he puts the knife right at her throat. It's a very disturbing image. Now you're going to answer it, but I'm going to tell you what to say. Now don't goof. Hello? Mary? Tell her yes. Yes? This is Mother. Are you all right? Tell her you're fine. Yes. Yes, I'm fine. Is David there? Tell her David's out. He won't be back till 8 o'clock. Tell her where he is. David is not here. He was going to pick up some supplies. He'll be back around 8. Oh, I see. Say goodbye, get rid of her. I'll tell David you called. Goodbye. Uh, goodbye, dear. Okay, you did fine. That is the crucial scene in this entire episode. And what's so brilliant about the way it's done is that Sam doesn't have a clue. Neither do we. He thinks, as he said... Okay, you did fine. In fact, Sam doesn't even have time to register what might be going on there. Because even as he's still speaking, there's the sound of a car horn. You did okay. And this seems like much more of a threat to him. He comes racing across the hallway, dragging Mary. The camera pans along with them. It's a nice shot. He pulls the curtain back just a little bit to take a look outside. He and we can see a car pulling up. Who is it? I said, who is it? My neighbor, Mrs. Martin, and her little girl. Don't let her in. Don't watch that screen. Just get rid of her. Don't let her get wise to anything. You understand? Sam jumps up on the counter right by the front door, knife in hand. There are some nice shots during the course of this ensuing conversation, showing Sam and Mary, with Sam looking at her intently. Well, Mrs. Martin on the other side of the door can't see Sam at all. 
Mary and Mrs. Martin converse through the screen door. But then Mrs. Martin tries to walk in, and she finds the door locked. Well, what's the matter? Let me in. I, I've got a cold. I think Susie might catch it. Oh, don't worry about that. She's the healthiest kid ever lived. You couldn't give her a cold if you tried. We was on the way to town, and I thought I'd stop and have a cup of coffee, see if you need anything. Really, Mother, I don't think you better come in. What's the matter, Mary? You really sick? You look okay, you look fine. I get it. Dave went off mad, huh? Oh, let me tell you something. These little old spats... Please, Maud, I don't want to talk about it. I want you to go away, don't you understand? Well, I was just trying to be neighborly. Guess I know when I'm not walking. Yes, I know. I'm sorry. It's just... Ah, oh, sure, honey. Don't worry about it. I know how it is. I've been through it myself. Look, I'll come in. No, no. Can't you understand? I don't want to talk to you. You ought to be paddled, you little snip. It's a very suspenseful scene as the camera switches from showing Mrs. Martin, Maud, with Susie in the car in the background, and Mary, to the shot of Sam hiding with Mary, the ebb and flow. There's one shot of just Mary alone. Her eyes flicker over to the right just momentarily, as if looking at Sam. Maud does not pick up on it, and she and Susie leave. Now, before they do leave, let's mention who they were. Maud was played by Vivi Janis. She was born Vivian Audrey Jacobson. She was the second wife of Bob Cummings. And her second husband was John Larch, who may be best remembered as the father in the Twilight Zone episode, It's a Good Life. But it's good that you're making it snow, Anthony. It's real good. And tomorrow, tomorrow's going to be a real good day. <laughs> She's into Twilight Zone episodes herself, The Fever and The Man in the Bottle. Now, she and John appeared together in The New Breed, Tales of Wells Fargo, Goodyear Theater, and Wagon Train. But Vivi also appeared at times on the Gunsmoke radio show. She was the voice of Daisy Duck and Daisy's mother in the cartoon Donald's Diary. Donald, meet my brothers. (laughs) And this is my mother. Hey, what's the name? She's Lucy's friend Luann in the I Love Lucy episode Charm School. Does that mean that we have to go to parties and separate like the sheep from the goats? (laughs) Well, we like talking about babies and clothes and recipes, and they like to talk about sports and politics. We're interested in different things. Sure, just because we're married to men doesn't mean we've got anything in common. And she's Myrtle Davis in 11 episodes of Father Knows Best. You're in the same boat I was, the same boat. I said to myself, Myrtle, you're in a rut. Life is oozing by. And suddenly you'll be an old woman and you'll say to yourself, what happened? She's in one more episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, Mink, episode 36. And she died in 1988 at the age of 77. Wendy Winkleman plays Susie, and we saw her before in episode 12, Santa Claus and the 10th Avenue Kid, and we'll see her again next time in The Older Sister. All right, so Maud drives away. Sam steps out on the porch to make sure that she's gone. Makes me wonder if she could have seen him in her rearview mirror. 
and Mary takes advantage of that by closing and locking the door. But since the door only has a screen on it, Sam uses the knife and he easily cuts it open. In what Jack Seabrook calls a symbolic gesture of rape and violation. Mary runs down the hall to the bedroom, puts a chair in the way, but there's no lock on that door, and Sam pushes it open easily. But once in there, he tells Mary, What's the matter, you crazy or something? You gotta have your head examined. Now take it easy. Please leave me alone, please. Uh, what are you making a big thing out of this for? Uh, there's nothing to be afraid of. What are you afraid of, this? And he puts away the knife. It's as if he now thinks they're a friendly couple. And now he needs some clothes. Then they're going to look for a gun that she says isn't there and more money that she says isn't there. He says he doesn't expect to find it. And why is that? Because... I don't think you lie to me. I like you. I don't want nothing to happen to Behind his soothing words, you can hear Mary's terrified breathing, a strange dichotomy that makes the moment even more frightening. So Sam goes to gather some clothes. There's a nice shot from inside the closet as he picks out a jacket. He has Mary hold the jacket as he starts to take off his shirt. She looks away. <laughs> I wouldn't want to embarrass you. I couldn't have that. He gives Mary a nice little friendly pat on the back of her head. These kinds of playful words and actions are more unnerving than the violence that came before. He goes into the bathroom and we get another nice camera shot, this time showing Sam's back as he's taken off his shirt and Mary sitting on the bed reflected in the mirror. And with that, we're back to the warden and his secretary, as the warden says, He's got to be just fool lucky, and we got a good chance to grab him. But that's exactly what Sam thinks he is, is just fool lucky. Or as he puts it when he's putting on the clothes, Makes everything so easy. It's just a breeze. Sure came to the right place. And we're back to the bathroom, this time with Sam reflected in the mirror. We don't see Mary there. He asks her what time it is and gets no answer. So he turns around, the camera follows him, as he then stands in the doorway to talk to Mary directly. When Mary sees him all clean-shaven, in a coat and tie, she says, You, you are different. No, Chick, I'm not different. I just look different, but I'm still the same guy. That's a good reminder. He is still the same guy, as he'll prove when he tells her, Better wear a coat. A coat? Sure, you'll need it. But I'm not going. Sure you are, Chick. Look, everything will be easier with you along. Nobody will be looking for me with a dame. No, you don't need me. I'd only be on the way. Chicky, you don't seem to understand. It's not just because I need you for a front. I want you to come. I like you. Now, it'll be okay, you'll see. But it'll only make a mistake. I'll give you away and I... I said be quiet! What's the matter, you deaf? He slaps her hard. There's that brutal sound effect. As he hears the car, and she apparently does not. And then that great line. He runs out into the now darkened kitchen, peers through a couple of windows. It sounds like the car is driving away. Mary joins him. And we get more of a reminder of what a brutal, vicious man he is. I'm sorry, but you gotta learn, chick. When I tell you to do something, do it. Don't stall. You gotta learn that. 
Take this. When we need something, a bus ticket or something, you pay. And remember, I got a knife. Please, please don't make me come. I won't say a word. I will never say you were here. Will please. you stop it? Stop it! Now, you don't want to get me upset. I don't want to get upset, I tell you. Please. Now, take it easy. Take it easy. <laughs> take it easy. They walk out on the porch, and two prison guards come up behind them. The one who speaks... Hold it, Cobbett, don't move. ...is played by Bill Pullen. In his career, he was in I Was a Male War Bride, All About Eve, lots of westerns, and it came from outer space. If I was you, I'd get them rifles into the hands of some men and clean it up, whatever it is. He later taught theater arts at Barstow Junior College in Barstow, California, and he died in 2008 at the age of 91. Now, besides the guards, the warden is there, and he leans into Mary and says, May we use your telephone? You don't have to talk that way. I understand. This is still not a complete tip-off. He may be talking that way because she's Italian, and he figures she doesn't understand English very well. But no, that's not it. It's time for the twist. I want to ask you one question. Sure, Sammy boy. Anything at all. What is it? How did you know I was here? You told us. When you made the young lady answer the telephone. You see, she's been totally deaf ever since she was nine years old. And when she answered the phone and seemed to hear what her mother was saying, her mother knew that something was wrong. Luckily, she'd heard the broadcast and she called us. Let's go. Well, she reads lips pretty good, don't she? You had a little tough luck, Sam. Just a little tough luck. Jack Seabrook says of Sam, he thinks that he is lucky, but everything that happens to him shows otherwise. He fails in his efforts to have Mary provide sex, a gun, or cash. On the other hand, maybe the title refers to Mary. She's the one that had to have luck. But you know, the very end, when the guards and the warden and Sam leave, and the camera pulls back to show Mary picking up the coats they dropped and going back into her house alone, without Mike the dog, without her husband David, maybe this is a sign that she didn't have luck at all, that she didn't need luck, that she had grit and independence and intelligence to survive all on her own. Now, with a twist like that, and with the ability to go back and watch the episode again and again, we have to look back and make sure that everything played fair. And for the most part, it does. I do think, though, that there are three moments where she is probably not really looking at the lips of the person speaking. The first is with David. Hey, Mike! Here, Mike, here, Mike! Where do you suppose he went? Oh, he's up in the hills. He fancies himself a mighty hunter. And the other two with Sam. First, after he tells her to make him some eggs, she has turned away when he says, Make it two. Oh, you better make it three. But she grabs three eggs anyway. And the other time, when he asks, What's your name? Mary. If those are the only could-she-read-his-lips quibbles in the whole episode, that's pretty good. And as for the quibbles about filling the episode out with the warden and his secretary and the helicopter pilots, once you get to the meat of the story, none of that really matters. You have two intense, great performances by John Cassavetes and Marissa Pavan. And this episode does justice to Hitchcock's reputation as the master of suspense, even though he didn't direct this episode. It has suspense like you wouldn't believe. Suspense and tension and real fear for Mary, who seems extremely vulnerable. And then, of course, it has that wonderful twist 
making this one of the very best episodes, not just in the first season, but in the entire series. Now, as I said, Hitchcock did not direct this episode. Robert Stevens directed this episode. He directed 15 episodes in the first season. That's more than a third of them. And they all have their moments. They all have their nice little touches. This one certainly does. If you go back and look at the four previous episodes that he has directed, you can recognize his style in this one. Things like the shot from inside the fireplace in Premonition or the close-up of objects in Our Cook's a Treasure are reflected here in the shot from inside the clothes closet or the close-up of the pie with the crust being cut off. This is the first of three in a row directed by Robert Stevens, so we'll see him next time. And the teleplay was written by Eustace and Francis Cockrell. This is the last teleplay for Eustace in the series. Francis returns with episode 23, Back for Christmas. The story, on the other hand, was written by S.R. Ross. It appeared in the October 1952 issue of Ellery Queen's Mystery Magazine. There are some that think that S.R. Ross is Stanley Ralph Ross, who has many teleplays to his name. But as Jack Seabrook points out, he would have been 16 years old when this story was written, and his first TV credit does not appear for over a decade. Plus, the introduction to the story in the Ellery Queen Mystery Magazine makes it clear that S.R. Ross is a woman unless you think that the entire introduction is just fabricated. Here it is. S.R. Ross's You Got to Have Luck is one of the seven first stories which won special awards in EQMM's seventh annual contest. Miss Ross's story is honest and painstaking, and in every single line, she has borne in mind the author's responsibility to readers, including the particular responsibility that every detective story writer owes to the modern form of the genre. The author is still in her early 20s. She first began to write for her high school magazine, but when she announced her intention of becoming a professional writer, her entire family, we are sorry to report, greeted Miss Ross's statement with hysterical laughter. In fact, her ambition became something of a standing joke, and even when Miss Ross won the English award on her graduation from high school, her family still refused to take her seriously. But now that we are publishing Miss Ross's first story, we are happy to report a change in attitude at Miss Ross's home. We would have liked to have been present when Miss Ross flashed a certain letter and later a certain check before the astonished eyes of her family. It would have done our editorial hearts good. Sadly, though, it appears that this may be S.R. Ross's only published story. And you know what? I'm going to read the entire thing. Why not? We owe it to her. So here is You Got to Have Luck by S.R. Ross. It was when the girl moved toward the sink and turned on the water that Sam Cobbett crawled around the corner of the farmhouse. He sprang up the stairs to the porch, yanked open the screen door, and jumped inside. The door banged shut. For a moment, now that he was in the house, Sam didn't know what to do. Then he saw the knife. It lay on the kitchen table, its blade glittering in the sunlight. Sam pounced on it, his eyes on the slim girl at the sink. She had not turned. She stood back to the room, scraping a fat-crusted pan. The scratchy sound rose above the loudly running water. Sam picked up the knife, was admiring it, when he heard a scream. He whirled. A baby sat on the bottom of a playpen in a corner of the kitchen, his tiny face red with terror. Sam tightened. He glanced toward the girl. She had turned off the tap, was drying a large white plate. She reached up to open the door of the cupboard that hung above the sink, and she stiffened. Sam's rat face, dark with beard, 
stared at her in the glass surface of the cupboard's door. She turned then, and the dish in her hand fell and smashed on the floor. Her face is white. Her eyes were fastened on the knife in Sam's fist. She stumbled to the playpen, scooped up the child, clutched him to her. She stood that way, pulling her eyes painfully from the knife over the prison uniform, the gray pants, the sleazy matching shirt sticking in wet patches to his skin. The puzzled look that vied with the fear faded from her face. Only fear remained. Her eyes fastened on his thin-lipped mouth. She tried to speak, but her voice broke. She tried again. My husband will be back in a few minutes, very soon. You, you'd better go. Her voice was too loud, and it had a hollow ring. Sam laughed. He remembered the way he had crouched in the thick green foliage, listening to the voices that drifted out from the open window. He remembered the conversation, the concern in the young man's voice, the reassurance in the girl's, the rasp of a dusty jeep going down the gravel driveway. And then the girl was alone, except for the kid. And Sam in the bushes had murmured over and over to himself, you got to have luck. You got to have luck. He still couldn't believe it. Sam didn't fool himself. It wasn't over yet. Not the running. But the first big problem, that was solved. He was out. Now came the bigger problem, the staying out. But the brakes were coming his way. No siren yet. And now this. Heard everything you and your husband said. He smiled at her with his mouth. His eyes were gray pebbles. Don't try and fool me. Your husband ain't going to be back till three o'clock. That's a long time from now. He looked at the girl. She stood opposite him, her mouth almost moving with his in disbelief. Sam continued, You just listen to me, girlie, and nothing will happen to you. Or to your kid. He pulled out a kitchen chair and sat down slowly. First thing, I want something to eat. Then when I'm good and rested up, I want some of your husband's duds. He grinned again. Just you do like I tell you, he assured her, and nothing will happen. The girl stood motionless for a moment. Then, in a flurry of activity, she began to move about the kitchen, putting the child in the playpen, gathering the pieces of broken china. Sam sat watching. Only when she stood in front of the stove, frying something sputtery in a skillet, did he look away. He glanced at the kitchen clock. It was 10.30. He had been out an hour, an hour of riding in the empty laundry basket, an hour of running from the high walls, the iron cells, an hour of racing through the fields, ducking into the tall grasses, and no alarm yet. No use, he knew, to try to get news on the radio. They didn't even know he was out yet, and that was okay with Sam. The sound of the prison sirens split the midsummer morning. Sam stirred uncomfortably in the chair. The alarm was sharp and long. Its hoarse shrillness moved down his spine so that even in the sticky heat, Sam felt chilled. He glanced at the girl as she set the plate of scrambled eggs on the table before him. She said nothing, just stood there, her glance jumping about the room to the walls and corners, but always coming back to rest on Sam's rat face, on his rat mouth. She's got guts, Sam thought with annoyance. Aloud, he said, put on the radio. I got to hear the news. She walked to the radio where it sat on the refrigerator and fiddled with the dial till the set glowed with life. Suddenly the room was filled with the deafening blare of a dance band. Sam sprang from his seat. Savagely, he twisted the music down. He pulled her around, slapped her hard. The marks of his fingers appeared on her cheek. Try something like that again. He stopped. A voice had cut through the music with a news bulletin. Sam listened with satisfaction. 
They were wrong. They placed him about 20 miles on the other side of the pen. A motorist had picked up a hitchhiker. The hitchhiker had robbed him. They assumed it was Sam. He laughed aloud. You gotta have luck, he told himself. The music came on again. Sam turned back to the table and pulled out the other chair. He motioned the girl into it. In the playpen, the baby stood up, not crying now, holding onto the bars for support. Head tilted, it listened intently to the soft waltz music. Not much like B Street Tavern, Sam thought, chewing swiftly. Here, only the endless ticking of the clock, the pop, pop, pop of the perking coffee, the hum of music. Here, it was warm and light. There, it was always cool and dark. Behind the bar, Mike, and at the register, Cora. No, Cora was dead. He'd been drunk that night, and she'd been nasty, laughing at him when he accused her of two-timing him. He wasn't sorry, though, not even for the long years in there. Life, they had said. But now he was out. And there'd be other Coras, only nicer, much nicer. He looked at the girl. Not bad, but mousy, too quiet. Probably scared stiff, he thought. She looked away from him, made another survey of the room, fixing her eyes on the restless liquid in the glass percolator. Rising, she poured him a cup of the black coffee. Some of it slopped into the saucer. It was 11.30 when Sam scraped the chair back. Got to get going, he thought. Can't stay too long in one place. Had enough of that. He laughed at his own joke and tucked the knife into the belt of his pants. The girl stared at his mouth. He brushed at his lips angrily till the few crumbs of dried egg fell off. Show me where that husband of yours keeps his clothes. They'd be too big, he knew, but anything was better than his prison suit. She led the way to a door at the rear of the kitchen. It opened into an uncarpeted hallway. He followed her down it, his heavy-soled shoes clattering on the boards. His toes squirmed about in the enclosed stickiness. It would be good to put on clean socks, maybe even different shoes. The girl was walking on wooden legs. He stayed close behind her. When she turned once, he grinned and thought, She's scared maybe I'll go back to the kitchen. Scared for the kid. That's why she does everything I tell her. She walked past the hall telephone where it hung near the foot of the stairs, and they just started up when it rang. The bring of the bell made Sam jump. He grabbed at the girl's wrist and spun her around. Fear pulled at her lips. The telephone kept ringing. Sam cursed under his breath. The girl kept looking at him. The telephone rang and rang. I got to let you answer it. Might be somebody who knows your home, maybe even your husband. I'll tell you what to say. Don't try nothing funny, understand? He pulled her to the phone. Sam took the receiver off the hook and held it in his sweating fist against his ear. His left hand covered the mouthpiece. Understand? He snarled it. She nodded. In his ear, an old woman's voice said, Hello, Vic? Tell her it ain't Vic. Tell her Vic ain't here. Say it's you and ask her who it is. Sam removed his hand from the mouthpiece and the girl spoke into it, her glance still frozen to his face. Vic isn't home. This is Mary. Who's this? Her voice was high-pitched and clear. There was a funny sound at the other end of the line, like a hiss. Sam gripped the receiver. Nosy old, he thought. Then the voice came again. Mary? This is Mother. I thought I'd catch Vic when he came in for lunch. Can you take a message for him? Tell your mother yes, Sam pointed threateningly to the knife. Watch out you don't say nothing else. He freed the mouthpiece again. 
The girl looked away from him then, away from his face to a point above the phone box. I hear you, mother, she said. Yes? The old woman's voice rattled the instrument. Tell Vic the wheel on Davy's carriage is fixed. Dad fixed it this morning. He can come on over for it. Sam pressed against the girl, his mouth to her ear. He whispered, Say you got that, then say goodbye. For a long moment, the girl said nothing. Her fingers clung to the black phone box, the knuckles white. Sam's anger mounted. His left hand tight on the mouthpiece, he grabbed her shoulder with his right and shook her. She turned her head then, her mouth twitching, and looked at him. Say you got that, Sam muttered. Then say goodbye. He took his hand from the mouthpiece, and with an effort, the girl spoke into it. I've got that. Goodbye, mother. The receiver went down at the other end of the line. Sam drew the knife and severed the cord where it came out of the box. Close. Too close for comfort. You're smart, girly, he grinned. Real smart you didn't try nothing. Now go get me some clothes and some of your husband's shaving stuff. Thirty minutes later, when Sam stepped into the kitchen, they were waiting for him. The sheriff had his gun propped on the edge of the table. He kicked out the chair opposite with the toe of his boot. His bass voice rose above the lighter voices in the kitchen, the high-pitched voice of the girl, the gurgling of the baby, the sibilance of the old woman. Sit down, Sam, the sheriff said. Drop the knife on the floor and sit down. And stay set till the warden gets here. The muzzle of his gun was pointed gently at Sam's belly. Sam sat down. Puzzled, he relived the morning. What had gone wrong? Nothing, nothing! And yet the sheriff had known he was there. They had come up to the house noiselessly. There had been no sound of a car, no doorbell, no banging of the screen door. They had known for sure he was there. And they had waited comfortably in the kitchen, waited for him to come downstairs. How the devil did you know I was here, Sam whined. I don't see, the sheriff grinned. He nodded toward the girl, who stood beside her mother, the baby in her arms, looking intently down at both men. That's it, he said. You don't see, and Mary don't hear. She's been stone deaf since she was 13. She reads lips. Her mother tipped us off. She knew something was wrong when Mary acted as if she could hear over the phone. Here's Jack Seabrook again. You Got to Have Luck is a well-written little crime drama with an unforgettable twist ending. Once you know it, you can go back through the story and find numerous clues to Mary's deafness. She does not hear the screen door being shut when Sam first enters the house. She does not react to her baby's scream. She only realizes that Sam is present when she sees his reflection in the glass door of a kitchen cupboard. When Mary does speak, her voice is too loud and has a hollow ring. When she turns on the radio, the volume is too high, and she fails to answer the telephone when it rings. Her voice is high-pitched and clear when she speaks on the telephone, and when Sam speaks to her from behind, she does not respond. These clues are subtle, and one does not notice them individually or in the aggregate while reading the story, but in retrospect, they clearly portray a woman who is deaf. Now, there's two other adaptations that we need to mention. The first is the EC comic story, From Here to Insanity, published in Crime Suspense Stories number 18, cover dated August-September 1953, with art by Reed Crandall. The title is a takeoff of From Here to Eternity, of course, and it was a title that was later used as the title of a comic book series, a mad rip-off series, that appeared for five issues in 1955. Now, in this story, there's a homicidal maniac trapped in a tenement 
who tries to escape via the roof, except there's a padlock on the roof door. He grabs an old woman who is leaving a milk bottle outside her door, Mrs. Green. He takes her into her room. The police are searching. He has her talk to the police through the closed door. But Mr. Tucker, the building superintendent, is there, and he knows she is deaf. It finishes with the homicidal maniac back in the state hospital for the criminally insane. And as you sit on the bare floor of your padded cell, you giggle, you giggle all day long. So funny. You turn deaf ears to the women you killed, and an old woman's deaf ears finally turned you over to the police. The other adaptation is from the 1980s Alfred Hitchcock Presents series, and that version is called Prisoners. Like most of the 80s versions of Alfred Hitchcock, it comes on too strong and too loud. Compare the calmness of John Cassavetes, and you got to have luck with the yelling by the convict here played by Yafet Kodo in Prisoners. Well, how do you do? I know this was my day. Go on, cut that solvent out. Shut up! I'm a thief, not a rapist. What are you going to do to me? All I want is food, some clothes, and a car. You got a car? But it needs a new muffler. With his claim there that he's a thief, not a rapist, the episode dismisses any sense of sexual assault or danger. And after all the yelling and the turmoil settle down a bit, the convict and the woman end up bonding. They discover they're both prisoners, hence the title. He is a literal prisoner. She feels like she's a prisoner in her own house, estranged from her husband, Glenn, who has sealed all the furniture in the living room in plastic so that she never uses the room. The woman and the convict bond over watching The Price is Right, playing Monopoly, and taking turns using a knife to rip the plastic on the furniture. And in case you're still not getting it by then, the convict comes right out and tells you. I'm sorry about your sofa and all. As soon as the sun goes down, I'm out of here. I'm out of here and you'll still be afraid of going to your living room. I mean, you're just as much a prisoner in this house as I was yesterday. Only I blew that top. I'm never going back. Eventually, she asks him to take her as a hostage. And she packs, planning to go along. Then the phone rings. And we have the situation with the telephone. Finally, the convict decides to leave alone, but she doesn't want him to go. Or so it seems. In any event, he steps out of the house and is confronted by the police. He decides he never wants to be a prisoner again, and he refuses to give up his gun, and they shoot him and kill him, leading to this strange little anticlimactic business where the convict doesn't even hear what got him caught. Cuff him. He's dead. Cuff him anyway. I can't believe she got him to fall for that trick. What trick? <laughs> this is Nordstrom's death. So? Well, she can't communicate except by reading lips. She can't talk on the telephone. After which, Mrs. Nordstrom leaves the house with her suitcase. Did she plan on him to be killed so she could go off on her own? Who knows? Who cares? It's another big misfire on the 80s show. The whole concept of prisoners, a literal prisoner, a woman who's a prisoner in her own house, it's overdone and exaggerated in this episode, way overdone. But it could have been an interesting concept. But to tack on the story from You Got to Have Luck just makes no sense at all. All you really have to ask is, if she really wants to leave, unless she's really setting up the prisoner to be killed, 
Why in the world doesn't she tell him she can't talk on the phone? She's deaf. The most interesting thing about Prisoners, actually, is the Hitchcock intro and outro. The script of the intro is the same as what we have on the DVD, but it's clearly a different take because Hitchcock picks up the second-hand hourglass from a different spot and doesn't put it on top of the big hourglass. He puts it on the other side of the desk. I'm going to play it because even though it's the same words, he doesn't perform it in exactly the same way. Good evening. The uh, hourglass is a wonderful invention, but I'm afraid it will never replace the sundial. Certainly not in my garden. This one doesn't even work. I sent it to a jeweler to be cleaned and he removed all the sand. Fortunately, the um, second hand still functions. Time is very important to the characters in tonight's story. One of them is doing it. For another, time seems to be running out. Time is also very important in television. We buy it, we fill it, we must start on it, we must finish on it. And appropriately enough, we occasionally kill it. I refer, of course, to my own fumbling efforts, certainly not to the vital announcement which follows. We've learned from the Alfred Hitchcock Presents Companion by Martin Grahams Jr. and Patrick Wickstrom that any of the outros that do not include a commercial break are probably the outros that were done for the European market. That's what we have on the DVD, and it concludes like this. Oh, well, back to the old rock pile. I do think Sam should be congratulated for making such a good try. Perhaps he'll have better luck next time. And returning to the subject of time, I believe we have just about exhausted that which was allotted to us. And so, until next time when we shall return with another story, good night. The 80s episode, on the other hand, has the post-commercial break piece of the outro as written in the Alfred Hitchcock Presents Companion, but not the pre-commercial break. So I'm going to read that part, and then we'll finish up with the post-commercial break as provided by prisoners. Oh, well, back to the old rock pile. I do think Sam should be congratulated for making such a good try. Perhaps he'll have better luck next time. And returning to the subject of time, I'm sure you have been aware of the occasional sly remark I have directed at television commercials. In the interest of fair play, I will step aside for the moment to give my sponsor equal time to reply. Ladies and gentlemen, my worthy opponent. I got an email from listener Bobby J, who informed me that the version of Breakdown that appeared on the Prudential Family Hour of Stars on May 15, 1949, and starring Joseph Cotton, still exists and is, in fact, on YouTube. The Prudential Family Hour of Stars. Today, a story called Breakdown. Our star, a guest for the occasion, Mr. Joseph Cotton. If you want to see how that story plays out on radio, track it down and give it a listen. You'll find that it's really quite good as a radio broadcast. There's a moment when the sound of a light switch going off is devastating. But the ending does meander a little bit. So my thanks to Bobby J for pointing that out. I really appreciate it, Bobby. When I was a kid and my friends and I talked Twilight Zone, we had this question we would ask of the main character of each episode. Were they a one-wayer or a round-tripper? I don't think I have to explain what that means. You can also ask that question of the main characters in Alfred Hitchcock Presents. 
So far, by my count, there have been five round-trippers, Triggers and Leash, Into Thin Air, Breakdown, Santa Claus and the Tenth Avenue Kid, in this episode, unless you consider Sam to be the main character, in which case he's a definite one-wayer. You could also include the Cheney vase if you think that Martha is the main character, except that Lyle really is the main character. Anyway, I officially became a round-tripper from the Twilight Zone because I returned in early October from the Twilight Zone's 60th anniversary celebration in Binghamton, New York, Rod Serling's hometown. It was a great time and a lot of fun with lots of talk about the Twilight Zone. But you can't really talk about the Twilight Zone without touching at times on Alfred Hitchcock Presents. That happened often over the weekend, but I wanted to mention three times in particular. First, I met a lot of very nice people, one of whom was Roger Scarlett, who is not only a big Twilight Zone fan, but told me he is a dedicated listener to this podcast. Roger flattered me to death and took on the role of my agent by introducing me to a number of people and telling them they should listen to this show. So hi, Roger. Great to meet you. And thanks for all the kind words and the promotion. Second, there was a FaceTime Q&A with Bill Moomy, who was patient and good-natured and gave great answers to all of the questions. One question led him to tell his story of performing in the Alfred Hitchcock Presents episode, Bang, You're Dead, when Hitchcock, as director, said something nasty to him that scared him so much that he avoided Hitchcock's office ever after and left him with a bad taste in his mouth about Hitchcock even today. I had been planning to play that clip of Bill Moomy telling this story when I got to Bang Your Dead, except that it's in the seventh season. So if you want to know the story right now, check YouTube. It's on there because he's told it many times before. And the way he tells it on the YouTube clip is just how he told it in the Q&A, which probably means it's buried into his brain and all the details are correct. And third, I got to meet Martin Grimes Jr., co-author of the Alfred Hitchcock Presents Companion. I told him how essential his book is to my podcast, and he told me that there were only 1,500 copies printed. The first run was 1,000 copies and sold out immediately, so they printed a second edition of 500 copies, of which my copy is one, and it sold out immediately. But then the publisher wanted to hike its take for each copy for a third edition, so Martin said no. He did say there was someone out there who was trying to arrange bringing the Alfred Hitchcock Hour seasons out on DVD in the U.S., And if that happens, maybe he can arrange another edition of his book. We can only hope. And he also told me that his co-author, Patrick Wickstrom, is a physicist in Sweden. And one last item before we sign off. Rolling Stone magazine just recently released its list of the 30 best horror TV shows of all time. And Alfred Hitchcock Presents is number 18 on the list which is pretty good when you consider that the series is 64 years old and also that it's not a horror show. This is what they say about it. The creepy theme song, the striking silhouette, the slowly, slyly delivered good evening. When Alfred Hitchcock migrated from the big screen to the small in order to make a weekly series, his personal brand was the main attraction. In addition to using his hosting gig to become an embodiment of horror, a characterization Tippi Hedren would no doubt find appropriate, Hitch further honed his directorial skills on nearly 20 of the series' episodes, garnering two Emmy nominations. But perhaps the show's greatest contribution to the genre was Hitchcock's use of much of its crew, cheaper hires than the usual Hollywood suspects, to shoot a little movie called Psycho. Check out Rolling Stone's list 
See what you think of it. If you're wondering what their pick was for number one, spoiler warning here for those who want to go through the list and be surprised. They chose Twin Peaks. Alfred Hitchcock presents season one. Husbands, including the Seymour Castle and Al Rubin quotes. Shadows. Faces. Love Streams including the documentary Almost Not Crazy, Columbo Season 2, The Dirty Dozen, Rosemary's Baby, The Best Years of Our Lives, Judgment at Nuremberg, The Wild One, One-Eyed Jacks, Superman and the Mole Men, Batman Season 1, Twilight Zone Seasons 3 and 4, What Price Glory, The Rose Tattoo, I Love Lucy Season 3, Father Knows Best Season 4, and It Came From Outer Space are all available on DVD at the Ann Arbor District Library. Saddle the Wind, The Bonanza Episode, Marissa Pavan Accepting Anna Magnani's Oscar, Marissa's Appearance on What's My Line, Her Song Croyez-Moi, Donald's Diary, the 80s Alfred Hitchcock Presents episode Prisoners and the Prudential Family Hour of Stars episode Breakdown are all available online. If you wish to contact me about this podcast, please email me at sherdsmaa at aadl.org. That's S-J-O-E-R-D-S-M-A-A at aadl.org. And please put Hitchcock somewhere in the subject line. Next time, episode 17, The Older Sister, starring Joan Loring, Carmen Matthews, and Polly Rolls. His case is not without some merit, I grant you. I shall present my rebuttal next week at the same time. So as not to miss it, I suggest you set your alarm clocks at once. Good night.